0: Welcome to Econ Talk, conversations for the curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 4th, 2023, and my guest is Tiffany Jenkins. Our topic for today is her most recent book, Keeping Their Marbles, How the Treasures of the Past Ended Up in Museums and Why They Should Stay There. Tiffany, welcome to Econ Talk. Hello. Let's start by talking about why museums are important uh, in the abstract. What happens to us as, as visitors to a museum that That matters, you know. It's they're interesting. I look around. There's artifacts, and some of them are impressive. Is anything more than that?
1: Um, Well, I find it's an encounter with the past. Um, and with the people of the past. So I really noticed during COVID that you you couldn't go to these places that you would go to regularly and you took for granted. You could see them online. You could see the artifacts online. You could go to the Louvre. You could go to the Met. You could go to anywhere. But you couldn't go yourself through that door. And it's something about going through that door and you enter this world and it might be ancient Egypt. It might be Assyria. It might be ancient Athens. And it's like you're transported. I find them almost like a time machine. Depending on your state of mind and the time of day and what's going on with your life, it might be that you just dart in to see a particular painting or object. But it also might be that you want to be just taken somewhere, actually by the institution, because, you know, they've curated these things, usually intelligently, to tell a story. And I just find it awe-inspiring, I really do, that these people... Thousands of years ago, were creating these things, and they might not have been initially to impress us. They certainly weren't. They were often for a particular purpose, to worship a god or to make their breakfast, an ordinary breakfast bowl, that sort of thing. And somehow, it's like they've left it for you, so you have a, like a door into their life. I find them, if I'm sad or happy, they just I, they just sort of take me out of myself and show me another world and another time and place. And I think that. I mean, I just think that's worth everything, really. Um, understanding other cultures, under, understanding that we aren't the only ones on the earth, that there's this sort of chain of generations behind us that influence us, that connect us, connect to us. And I do find them inspiring. So they make me think of um, human achievement. Even it might be, even if you go into you a know, museum of war, um, You see the complicated, sometimes destructive nature of human beings, uh, but you also see the creative and human side. So I really like them.
0: A lot of your book is about the increasingly loud demand that many of the objects in these these museums that came from elsewhere should return to where they once were, uh, either geographically within some national boundary that may or may not have existed in the past, but it's certainly closer to where they started. Um, when I went to London for the first time, I asked a British friend of mine what I should do when I was there, and he said, "Well, you know, the British Museum, of course." And then he listed a bunch of other things. And I, I've probably remarked on this on the program in the past. That phrase, "the British Museum, comma of course," does really not doesn't really capture. What an extraordinary uh, collection of of human experience is under its roof uh, I would sus- I have the suspicion that if objects that currently there were repatriated to where they once came from, there wouldn't be much there <laughs> uh, much of it is the is a comment on the British past, both military and Colonial and exploratory. And um, it, it, these demands that items be returned uh, certainly make you think about what a museum would be in the absence of some of, uh, of the imported items. But in the, for the British Museum in particular, the most prominent example would be what, what is called – or what are called the Elgin marbles. Uh, tell us what they are where they started, and how they came to be residing in Bloomsbury under the roof of the British Museum.
1: Okay, well, um, the British Museum is an interesting museum to start with because it doesn't house very many objects from Britain. Lots of other museums, particularly uh, France and Europe, were housed, were built to house the collections of the nation. Um, the British Museum was, was constructed a little bit earlier in 1756 um, out of the collection of a man called Hans Sloane. And initially you had objects from the voyages of exploration. So there's no antiquity in there whatsoever. But now they are, if you like, um, all about antiquity, not all about antiquity, but the Elgin marbles. Uh, many people want to call them the Parthenon sculptures now. Even the term Elgin gets you kind of into trouble um but there we have it we'll i'll probably call them both in fact no i'll call them the elgin marbles just to distinguish them so these are um sculptures that were taken from the parthenon in athens they're about two thousand years old so they were made at the height of um athens most democratic but also imperial moment and they were built under pericles the general and politician Under his under his command, um, to honour the goddess Athena. So it was a temple initially, this this Parthenon, and it's not a temple's not like how we would think of a temple. It was there really to house the god or the goddess, in this case Athena, um, and probably loot from war. Um, And it was constructed partly to um, partly as a kind of uh, and it, partly as a trophy against the Persians who they had just defeated. So it was kind of like, we are, we're the best. We, uh, the, us Athenians are the best. Um, and it is an astonishing work. I was in Athens this um, summer and the image we all have now of Athens is obviously of the Parthenon that's still left on, uh, of the Acropolis that's still left on the, of the Parthenon that's still left on the Acropolis. Half of those sculptures roughly are in the Acropolis Museum, which is a reasonably new museum, 10 10 years old or so, a bit older. Um, And half are in the British Museum in Bloomsbury. So these sculptures from ancient Athens are really at the centre of the British Museum. Um, The ones in the BM, I mean, there are a lot of them. There's a whole room and there's these incredible sculptures of horses. And the big part of it is this relief And in ancient accounts, actually, people don't really talk about the relief. That's not the big deal, but that's what we've got. And it is a big deal. Um, You see these, it's a procession and a few battle scenes. And these figures are, they're sort of off-white as ancient antiquity is. It's not like the Romans sculptures, which are kind of really white. This is off-white. It's... I sometimes think of it a bit like a Leonardo in as, in as much as it's it's realistic, but it's also imagined. So you can see the, on the horse, for example, which is one of the most famous sculptures, you can see this vein down its nose. And you can, or, you know, when you want to touch a horse's face or long nose, it's like that. and um, It's sort of pulsating. Um There's these battle scenes of a, a, and you can see this warrior is about to die. Um, I find it incredible. There was an exhibition there a few years ago at the British Museum that compared the Parthenon to the sculptures of Auguste Rodin, the French sculptor. He was tremendously, really, really impressed and excited by them. And putting them side by side, you could see both how he was influenced by them, but also how he departed. From them, um, and how actually those those pieces, since they were taken to the British Museum in the at the turn of the nineteenth century, um, have inspired artists for generations, um, including to this day. Obviously, people wandering around there to this day. So, you asked the most important question, which is how did they get there? So, there they were very few um, antiquities in the British Museum and there were very there was very little knowledge of greek antiquity at that time the sort of turn of the 18th into the early 19th 191900s um, ancient athens itself was under an occupier the ottomans and had been for 3 340 years or so 300 years um, and there were just travellers that were beginning to get into the area and look at it. At the time, it was a shanty town in Athens. It was on the top, but it was there were buildings everywhere. It doesn't look like it does today because a lot of surrounding buildings were taken down to subsequently glorify that particular period in history. So all the modern stuff had gone has since has since gone. Uh, the Turks were using it as a garrison, and locals. You're talking about
0: the Acropolis now.
1: Yes. Which the is so if you I haven't get- been to
0: Athens and I was also just yeah. there recently for the first time, it's rather extraordinary. It is essentially a plateau. It it is almost like it looks like it's created to be a pedestal for the for the Parthenon. It it towers above towers is too strong, but it's visible from everywhere as this standalone mesa almost, this flat topped area. And the Parthenon is large enough to be visible from almost everywhere that you could see it. And you're saying that in the before, in the 1800s, the Turks used it as that whole flat-topped area as a garrison and had other buildings, as well as the remnants of the Parthenon.
1: Yes. And in fact, inside it, there was a mosque which they had created for themselves, uh, which has also since been gone. So, But they are travellers, and people are, people were beginning to get really interested in this particular period in history and really wanted to see the real Greek stuff. They had the Roman, Roman stuff, but they didn't have the Greek stuff. Um, Elgin, Lord Elgin, is the British ambassador to Constantinople, and he becomes intrigued by these, some paintings and drawings that he's seen of these sculptures, and he sends a number of people to go fetch them. Uh, he comes to a deal with the Ottomans. This is one of the controversial things later but what we know is that uh, they came to some kind of agreement of which there is a firman, which is the terms of an agreement. Um, there is an Italian translation of it uh, which was the lingua franca of the time. That's what diplomats and people spoke. Uh, so we have this Italian translation of the firman, which says he can take parts of the sculptures which are on the ground. What we know is he took some off the building. So did he exceed the limits? Probably, but it's not like modern day where you have like contracts that are that thick, where there's everything saying, you know, you can take this blade of grass, but not that blade of grass. It's a different, it's a different setup. Um, Equally, many of the locals were taking parts of the building to grind up. And to use for their own purposes. So it wasn't this sort of archaeological or rarefied site that it is today. Um, There is writing between him and his agents about how I think there's one phrase which said, We were forced to be a little barbarous. And there's a description of the, because these are big sculptures, you know, (laughs) they're really heavy, large marble stone. Um, And there's descriptions of them sort of crushing, crashing to the ground and the earth shaking. Um, They then are shipped back to Britain. I think at the time he wanted some for his house. Um, He goes bankrupt. He has syphilis. He has a terrible time. Um, He can't afford to keep them. And he lands on the scheme of selling them to the British government. Um, And they have an inquiry into it, should they do it? And that inquiry, if you read through today, is quite interesting. There's two things that are um, at the centre of whether they should buy it or not. One is, were they looted in a way that the French would loot? And they decide, no, they weren't. (laughs) Exactly, so that's fine. (laughs) Um, But the other that I find really fascinating is that when they arrive people have this idea in their heads of what they should look like. They should be, A, they should have all their limbs. They should be kind of smooth. They should be white. And they're not. They're off-white. And they look a little bit more kind of relaxed than the Roman stuff that they are familiar with. So there's a big debate over whether they're any good or not. Uh, Massive, massive debate. Um, And it's possibly through that debate that they begin to be established as these great works of art. And they're acquired in the end by the British Museum, I think for £74,000. Um, and they are bought partly because they hope that they will reinvigorate and revitalise the arts in England. And there's some, there's some desire that maybe they'll also, by their sheer presence, uh, the kind of democratic spirit of Athens will seep into British culture. Um, there was some talk of maybe putting them, I mean, at first they were t- treated more like art objects, sort of aesthetic quality, you know, the aesthetic quality, uh, and less as they're kind of, uh, hoping that they would kind of inspire artists. And I think, uh, it certainly, they certainly became objects of poetry and inspirations, but they never quite had that impact upon British art that it was hoped, but they did become the centerpiece of this museum. in Bloomsbury, and they are still today, I mean, if you go in fact, if you go to the Duveen galleries, where they're housed, you always hear this kind of massive discussion going on at the hum, and the hum isn't about what people had for dinner or where they're going afterwards it's about whether or not they should be there in the first place, which is quite interesting really.
0: And they're arrayed in a large rectangle um, somewhat akin to how they may have been mounted on the, as a a frieze or a the relief part of it at least around the top of the parthenon which is like right correct where they they started.
1: Yeah, it's a rough approximation although it's much lower. Yeah. So if you ever go to the parthenon it's absolutely huge. I mean it's so tall. There's an amazing picture which you can find on the internet of Isadora Dora Isadora Dora um standing in front of it and it just towers above her. So the British museum they're much lower. Um, which means you can see them. I mean, that's the, in a way. So there's this one of the debates is, you know, should they be as they were, or should you play around with it? Okay. And the British Museum brings them lower so you can actually see them, and you can go, you can go up close to them, and you can be right, sort of there, yeah. in front of the horse, which I really like. Well, the
0: thing that that is. Um... That I learned from your book. That I that I did. I learned many things from your book. By the way, that I did not know. We'll we'll talk some more about some of them in a minute. But one of the most interesting things I learned was that um, it's very hard to remember that people in the past were almost as complicated, if not more so, than people alive today. And we have a certain set of templates and stereotypes about people in the past. One of my favorites is everyone was religious except for David Hume. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and this is not true. There were many people who had doubts about the existence of God or the pur- the value of religious life, just like today, different proportions perhaps. But in this case, I, I assumed incorrectly, uh, not in a conscious way, but I-, but I would have, if you'd asked me, well, most people in England, when those marbles arrived, were proud of them and glad that they came and... And didn't really care about how they were acquired because we're England, we rule the the Senate resets on the British Empire and and we're proud of that. And and yet your book reveals that certainly with with the marbles um, and with the the looting of the uh, palace in Peking during the aftermath of the opium wars in the uh, earlier part of the 19th century, that many – people in England were deeply uncomfortable with this process. They didn't just say, well, we're the most powerful nation on earth. We're entitled to anything we happen to pick up and grab. Uh, they were, there was shame. Uh, there were people who said this is immoral, unethical. They, so even then, people were uneasy with that acquisition, even if it was different than loot or plunder. In the case of the marbles, it was purchased. Maybe ex- exceeded in the contract, yes. But as you say, there were gray areas in, in, in many contracts like that. It wasn't like there was an archaeological commission there overseeing the removal. It was a chaotic time, and, and that was that. But even then, people were somewhat, not somewhat, many people were very uncomfortable.
1: They were, and I think, I think there are other ideas that um, influence that. Um, like I mentioned about the French, the French were much more um, conscious about and deliberate about their looting. It wasn't to say that the Brits didn't do it, but it's much more accidental and haphazard and informal. Um, And it often came as a consequence of empire rather than it being a kind of instrument of empire. Um, There was also quite a romantic strain. Um, So there was a very strong sense that... um, Artifacts belonged in the soil of where they came from. Um, That, you know, cultures are different and they have different practices and different ways of thinking and different ways of worshipping and they should remain in the soil of where they came from. Um, So the beginning, that kind of encyclopedic or more cosmopolitan idea of comparing cultures was something that not everybody bought into. And in fact, if you see some of the claims, some of the demands for repatriation – were along those lines. They should go back to where they belonged.
0: Yeah, I was um, shocked to discover uh, that Napoleon was not just a um, that the, there wasn't just looting. There was systematic looting. It, it was yeah. they were they were eager to acquire the French army through, and Napoleon were eager to acquire. Although I have to confess, Tiffany, this is an account from someone who's from the United Kingdom, so perhaps. Bias uh, against the French. We have to keep that in mind. I, you, I'll let you defend yourself in a second. But Napoleon, in your in your story, uh, had plans. He'd say, "Let's go get that thing in, in Belgium, and and when we get to Italy, we're going to take those things. And then when he loses the Battle of Waterloo, the British systematically try to get it returned. I mean, that is extraordinary. So they repatriated repatriated through war rather than unlike. Well, you have to put a footnote. The Rosetta Stone. The, the British army did defeat the French and took the Rosetta Stone that the French soldiers had found. But in general, the British army forced the repatriation of native works of art to their or, places of origin after conquering France in 1815 in the Battle of Waterloo. Correct?
1: Correct. And it in a way, it's the mirror image of taking it for sort of national gain. So there was a ditty in France that went something like, Rome is no longer in Rome. It's all in Paris, um, and the idea was that you take the greatest works of civilization to the greatest city of civilization, Paris. Then, um, and Napoleon was, I think, in his head was following uh, in the footsteps of the Romans, who looted like they were the first great looters, and they would bring their stuff back in the centre of Rome, in these big imperial triumphs. You know, with crates of everything that they were they had taken to show that they had achieved conquest, you know, they conquered their enemies. um, And the objects were part of that. Um, And I think that's what very much inspired Napoleon. And he did bring these things back and have, you know, his kind of equivalent of a triumph in Paris. So the Brits, when they win at Waterloo, forcing him to return is their kind of same sort of thing. They're using loot, and objects as a display of
0: might. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really uh, quite fantastic. Uh, wh- when I visited Rome for the first time, which again was recently, it was about five years ago, it's hard not to notice that there's a number of obelisks, large towers of uh, with Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics. And being an idiot, my first thought was, I wonder why they would build Egyptian... <laughs> of course, they didn't build them, they stole them. They have the most obelisks. They have 13, evidently. I looked it up before our conversation. Uh, I think they have the most of anywhere in the world. They have more than Mm are in Egypt. Um, And that's because they were powerful, and they took them, and they still have them. And they're rather extraordinary. Uh, And it's particularly extraordinary to see them in in Rome. Um, But the French took many things from Rome, and the British made them give many of them back they couldn't get all of them as you point out about maybe about half uh, some of the more important ones got returns probably sent, not all of them and so on
1: i think it also i think the interesting thing about those obelisks is i think they also made a particularly large ship for them because these are huge oh, objects yeah. i mean that if you imagine how they could have done it um it's quite astonishing um, but i think there are there were also and maybe i'm being a bit generous to the brits then i think there was the beginnings of an idea of what was right and what wasn't wrong, which wasn't to say it was systematic. Um, and I think probably there was possibly a sense of, you know, this is not we, what we Europeans do, which doesn't mean to say that they then didn't do it elsewhere.
0: Which uh, they the, other, the other interesting controversy at the museum that I found so extraordinary is that uh, if you go to the British Museum, they have quite a number of these large stone objects from Nineveh, from Assyria, of they 're dormous uh, of a of a creature that is half bull half human, and the human part is a he- the head is is this large bearded head and then there 's wings just to make it interesting they 're extraordinary and they have a ton of them and what I learned two fascinating things from your book: one is lots of other people have them too they don 't have all of them there 's someone in seattle there's some in Seattle and there 's some in New York, and oh my gosh um. When Nineveh was plundered in, again, in semi-modern times, when there were no Assyrians around to speak for themselves, these things went everywhere and they're so striking. And um, and yet when they were I, mean, arrived-
1: I, I should just say they weren't plundered then, they were excavated. Correct.
0: No, yes, absolutely. So they
1: were, and, but that's also an amazing thing, I think, is that they were underground. Uh, these things in museums were not you know, just taken from the shelves in other countries. They were underground and they were excavated by Henry, and in this case, Henry Layard. And so they they were there with their shovels and their kind of spades and finding them. I need to think, oh, because these, I, I love those objects because um, they, they are huge. And I think they adorned, the, they were at the entrance of the palace. There are all sorts of other things that they found there, which, you know, it things that we didn't know about those civilizations.
0: But the thing I love about those is that when, it came time to decide whether the British Museum should acquire them, again, through using the money of the British government, not a private collector. There was an enormous debate about whether they were, quote, any good and whether they were art. And and they were inevitably compared to the Elgin Marbles, which were, quote, the best. And these were just like, I'm not even sure this is art. Talk about that. It's incredible.
1: I, no, I think that's really interesting because effectively the museum is an orderer. And it makes things into hierarchies. It is. It creates knowledge, but it does also then impose it. And at the time, the idea that you know the Assyrians could possibly be as good as the Athenians was anathema. Just not a chance. You know, that's a very different mindset today to today, where you know we have the sense that all cultures are equal, and um, there the ancient the Athenians were one among many of different civilizations. Um, and I think it also speaks to just how important the British Museum found the Alga marbles. You know, they worshipped them. The whole of the museum uh, was kind of orientated around them. That's slightly different now. But the great thing about them being in the British Museum, as you say, is that you can then go to I mean, if you stand in one place, I think to the right, you've got Assyria and to the left, you've got Egypt. And in front of you, you have ancient Athens. So in front of you, you have the Parthenon. To the right, you have those funny winged beasts, um, which are really clever because they've got it five legs rather than four. And it's not because they had five legs, these imaginary creatures, it's because they're walking. I think, gosh, that's really clever. Um, but you can see, I think, you can look over there and you can see these winged beasts and you can look in front of you and you can see, particularly with ancient Athens, a lot of, um, not just the Parthenon sculptures, but you've got a lot of, you know, they were they revered the naked body. And you see the kind of human figure at the centre of Athens. And then to the left, you see these kind of these gods, Rameses, and a uh, very different way of thinking about the world. And just having those three civilizations next to each other, you can see both you can understand each of them on their own terms better, I think, through comparison. And I think that's what sort of these museums do is through comparison, you understand the specificity.
0: And for me, right also right there is the Rosetta Stone, which for for those if you think for some people the Rosetta Stone is just a language app on their phone, but but it actually is a physical item that had three different languages written on it, which was the only way, at least at the time, that we learned how to translate some of those languages, uh the hieroglyphics um, in particular. And to think of for me, it stands there like a like a sentinel, like a little bit like a very much like a monument to the mystery of the past which are those winged creatures like, why did they draw? Why did they make them that way? And what did they have to say about them? And to the extent that because we found the Rosetta Stone, we were able to decipher ancient writing and get a glimpse of what they were about. And of course there are a thousand other mysteries we can't fathom because we don't have enough Rosetta Stones in every cultural, not just language, but other religious practices and commercial norms and, they're lost to us. And the fact that anything remains is so gloriously beautiful to me. And so for, for me, it is a, it is a um, th- there's something awe inspiring about that particular spot. And um, some of that awe will go away if those marbles head back to Athens. So let's turn to that question. A lot of people, both British and certainly Greek, think that even though they were given away by Ottomans, <laughs> Or sold or whatever by Ottomans, they belong in Greece, uh, and that's the British Museum should give them up. So you are more ambivalent. Uh, is, is, is my take? Talk about why make the, talk about why they should be returned, and then maybe why they shouldn't.
1: Well, I w- I was in Athens this summer. And I went to the Acropolis Museum, which is right next to the Acropolis. And you can, I think it's a glorious building. It's modern, it's light, there's a lot of glass, it's elegant. Um, And you can, you know, from the lovely cafe, uh, but also from the museum itself, you can look out and you can see the Acropolis on the hill. And in fact, if you go up to the Acropolis, it's quite difficult to understand what this place was. But if you go into the Acropolis Museum, It tells you everything. Um, And it begins with pre-classical sculpture from the area. Um, And it tells you the story of of the Parthenon, sort of how it was um, created after the Persian Wars as this monument to them. It was a a monument to goddess Athena. Um, But it shows you through sculpture how magnificent these pieces are, how different they are. They just become, it's like you just walk through time and you see different ideas about human form and sculpture change. Just the the sense of um, how a person would stand. You know, a lot of the earlier sculptures are just really static. There's no dynamism. There's no life to them. Um, So you really understand the specificity of the time and the place in which they were created. So there's no doubt in my mind that if the sculptures that were in the British Museum went to the Acropolis Museum. They would in, probably enhance it slightly. Um, and you go there and you think, God, oh, this is, you know, this, even though you know it's 2,000 years on, that they don't look like they looked like at the time. You know, they were colourful. They had lots of bling on them. Um, we don't have a lot of them. You know, that's 40, 50% is gone, lost to the world. Um, so they they don't look like... They did look, but you still think, oh, this is real. This is the authentic place. So I was almost persuaded uh, this this summer. But I think there are are numerous reasons why I think the situation as it stands with half in each place is pretty good. It's probably the best situation because I think objects do different things in different places. Um, And in the British Museum, for a start, they have been there for 200 years. And so they're very much part of the identity of the museum. They're part of, in a way, they've got a kind of British identity. Um, They've also got a world identity because it's from the the retrieval of those sculptures at that time and the way they were communicated to the world, they suddenly kind of went the equivalent of viral, I suppose. You know, they, and this was just at the time when, people were beginning to think about the glory of ancient Athens, including a few years later, the Greek state, which was formed and they too started to, that's when they took down a lot of the buildings around it and almost invented this sense of being ancient Athenian and the continuity with the new, the new Greek state. Um, But In the British Museum, I think you understand them in relationship to other cultures. Um, You understand them in relationship, as we were saying, to the Assyrians, to the Egyptians, to the Romans, Uh, you know, their enemy, the Persians, but also now African art, uh, art from Korea. And I think that just really helps you understand what they were then, what they were, what they meant. It's a different way of seeing what they were then. Um, when they were created originally, but also what they have subsequently meant. And so I think, does it enhance our understanding there, without a question? And so that's why I'm firmly on the side of retaining them.
0: And my guess is they will not be retained. Um, Your book was written in 2016. Just before we recorded this, I found an article from the BBC's website about how negotiations for returning them were almost finished. Of course, that last 10% may never happen, but I, I suspect it will. And my suspicion is, and you can agree or disagree, but my suspicion is, is that they will be replaced at the British Museum by casts of the of the originals. And I want you to reflect on that for a moment. Um I have um I'm a big fan of Rodin. You mentioned Rodin earlier. Um Having spent many, many summers at Stanford, they have an extraordinary Rodin collection there and on the campus. And the Burgers of Calais are one of my five favorite works of art, I would say. And I can spend a lot of time just looking at them. But, of course, they're casts. They are not, quote, the original. Uh, They're a little bit different in that it's not a a freeze or a relief. It's a a full-blown sculpture. But I don't look at that and say, oh, this is just a cast, or um, or The Gates of Hell, which is another extraordinary work of art that Stanford has on its campus by Rodin, and I don't say, oh, it's just, I love them. I think they're beautiful. I could look at them for a long, long time, Um, and one would have to ask, what is really lost if the marbles are replaced by casts at the British Museum and the Athenian, the Acropolis Museum gets the quote originals. Uh, now, I'm sure there are people who could say, "Well, they're not the same," and and a, 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 a real artist, an art historian would 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 see differences and it would bother them. But I think it's something else. I, I really think there's something about the original. Just like what, seeing them online is nice, it's interesting. There's some value to it. I'm glad that Google and others have digitized many of the world's great art museums. But I've seen a lot of photographs of uh, Michelangelo's David, and that doesn't work. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Now, there's a cast of it. Uh, There there, there are two Davids, I think, in Florence, the real one and the cast. I, I suspect that the cast would amaze me as well but I don't like it as much. And it's just kind of interesting that the real thing is better somehow.
1: I think, I think it's better for two reasons. One is that although the casts are really good and obviously technology is just jumping far ahead, I don't think it is as good. And it might be that I couldn't tell the difference, but I still, I like to think I could. Um, I think I probably could. And, um, I do think we want to see the authentic thing. And I don't think it would, it, it would just, I just don't think, I think people, and it might be that we we're object fetishists and all the rest of it, but fine, I'm happy with that. I want to see the real thing. I think casts aren't going to be the answer. Um, I also think you could probably do something more creative with casts. I mean, I, casts, there's some really great casts in the V&A, uh, but I think That's you could Victoria make- the Victoria and Albert Museum, yeah. yeah. Um, I think one thing you could do is try, I mean, if, if money was no object, you could try and do what we think it would have actually looked like. I mean, and just do a full one and see. I mean, that, would be, that, would be, that wouldn't be trying to solve the repatriation argument. It would be trying to imagine what it was like and therefore it would be a new thing in and of itself. I think that would be really exciting. I'm not sure they will go back. I think a lot of that stuff in the press at the moment is uh, slightly mischievous from those who would like to repatriate. But I think what it's doing is taking advantage of a moment in the debate over museums, which is that that's what this kind of, the discussion about repatriation moves and up and down in relation to other political questions. Um, And often... If you can't mount the case for the museum, and I tie this repatriation discussion to that, can you mount a case for a museum? Can you mount a case for bringing lots of things that were not originally from here, here, putting them together and showing them to people and actually saying with some authority what they were and why you should look at them? Can you do that? And at the moment, and for many years, I think museums have actually found that quite difficult they've been much more defensive. So they, they sometimes apologise uh, really for what they're doing or they try to hide it slightly. And they talk about their cafes and things like this, and, which we love. But, you know, they, I think they're much more defensive. And at the moment, I think museums are very much on the back foot, which is why this argument, well, what's the point of them anyway? Why, should, why don't we just send them back? Is uh, kind of so popular. But I don't know if it will happen. Um, the, the technical thing is that there is a law that says it can't in Britain, the British Museum Act. Um, but there are there've been laws that say certain things can't happen in relation to museums in the past, in relation to, for example, human remains. Uh, and the government has changed the law, and therefore they've they've gone back. But I do see, I mean, I've been following this debate for a long time and it does, it's very volatile um, because it's so aligned to kind of political and intellectual currents. Uh, so, for example, we had Brexit in 2016, uh, which was to leave the European Union. It's very, the vote for was 52%, the vote against was 48%. So it was quite a divided uh, and it became a really kind of controversial and still is. Uh, subject with you know massive people not talking to each other on the different sides of the divide point being after that people were concerned that it was a kind of return to a national assertive nationalism yeah that was a general feeling and if you did a debate then over the marbles then nobody wanted them returned because it was seen as this kind of expression of greek nationalism and we're against that That's gone. And I think even things like uh, Black Lives Matter has changed the debate, Um, particularly over things like the Benham Bronzes, which was something different. They're objects taken from Nigeria. They are now going back um, and people think that will impact upon the marbles. But I will stake my reputation saying I don't think they'll go back.
0: Well... You heard it here first, uh, it's 2023 here in January. Well, it's a bold prediction because, you know, it's like when people say about Marx, he was so, um, he had such foresight, his predictions haven't come true yet. Meaning, you know, it's just a matter of time, but it may take a few hundred centuries. Um, but that, you're gone on record, we, I appreciate the boldness. Um, I I think, um, let's turn to this question of of the role of the museum because you spend a lot of time on it. And I found that also quite fascinating. Uh, growing up in 1950s, 1960s, America's a little boy. Museums are for where you learn about stuff that happened a long time ago and it gets explained and you look at, might be a diorama, it might be an object, but they're educational institutions for understanding the past generally or for appreciating art. And of course, as you write, quite nicely about many uh, defenders of museums in the past. They were also seen as civilizing, that that you went to a museum to become, quote, a better person. You, you educated yourself. You appreciated uh, the art or the artifacts of the past. And you also point out, of course, that even though they're for the people, they tend to historically to be mostly for rich people. Um Not Most museum-goers tend to be relatively well-off, and so there's a little bit of an illusion there that it's for the people writ large. Uh, That's true of colleges and universities, too, by the way. We we romanticize them as for the people, but in fact, they tend to be for mostly well-off people, and so subsidizing them as we do both those items, universities and museums, strikes me as a little bizarre um, and dishonest, but... That's the way it is, but your point, which is obvious uh, e- even to those of us who aren't experts, is that the whole idea of a museum, as in the way I've described it, is under attack. Museums are now frequently seen as their appropriate mission should be vehicles for um, restitution, contrition, apology, atonement, uh, or a social, a cultural agenda. So talk about that movement and why, uh, and your feelings about it.
1: Okay, well, I I think it's quite, let's let's try and think about the museum of the Victorian age or the Enlightenment age and the museum of the present. I think there was a great, there was a lot of building of museums in the Enlightenment period later and then the Victorian age. And I think the idea then was to educate the masses. Um, And there was a paternalism to that. Um, but the British Museum was free to free to anyone from seventeen fifty six You had to write and apply, so you know there was a certain barrier. You also had to have clean shoes. Um, I think the one in Russia you had to wear dress like a proper evening gown and a dress suit so there was a paternalism there but i did think I do think that there was a sense that ordinary people could be <laughs> could learn something, could be transformed, you know, could move from their, their particular circumstances into another. Okay, and I don't think that's so much the case now in all the discussions about accessibility in museums. It's very much the sense in which we need to reflect their culture to them. We need to go to them. Um, you know, there might be the hand-wringing about not having teenage boys in there, so what do we do? We'll put, in the case here, you know, we'll put video, an exhibition of video games on, and then they'll come. Um, so there isn't that sense that you could move. So it's not that paternalism was good, but there was a sense that we could, you know, we could, we we could be transformed. Uh, we could be educated, even ordinary people. So I think that's gone. I think there was also, I think perhaps in the past, and there's always a danger when you talk about the past that you idealize it. So I accept that, but I think there was a, an interest in other cultures that in a way you don't quite get the same today. Now, what do I mean by that? When we talk about things like diversity and world culture today, it's remarkably unspecific. Um, And sometimes you feel more like it's a moral lesson than it is a lesson about those people of the past. So I think museums have become very moralised, particularly around a kind of uh, the reckoning with history that's going on, Uh, particularly in Britain. I don't, I I mean, I'm sure, I know it's sort of similar in the States um, and to a lesser degree parts of Europe. There's, in Britain, there's a kind of, there is a kind of encounter, there is this kind of encounter with and reckoning with the colonial past, to which you might say about time. Um, but it's peculiar in that it's, you don't really learn very much about the colonial past. You learn, you learn it was bad. Uh, but the specifics of it, no. And I'll give you an example of a recent case, um, which is that there's a, in London there's a collection called the Welcome Collection, Henry Welcome, the pharmaceuticalist, who was also a collector of medical objects. And he was a slightly, you know, he was a slightly odd guy. He collected some really odd stuff, Um, (laughs) which you could see in an exhibition, um, sort of 15, 20 year long exhibition of his collection, which itself was uh, multivocal. So it had different interpretations of the artefacts. Some of them were human remains, for example, which are very controversial. Um, And so it would have different interpretations of the the ethics of having those there and what different people might think of them. Um, But that closed this year, last year now, because we're in 2023. That closed at the end of 2022 because the curator said it was racist, sexist and ableist. And to which you think, oh, that's bad. Uh, but then she was unable, I think, to be able to explain why it was racist, sexist, and ableist and why, if it was, it should be shut. Because surely, isn't it the job of the museum to help us understand that mindset, understand that time, understand that period? Um, it doesn't have to be sycophantic or hagiographic about it. It's to open up the past? So I almost think that what we're doing... Uh, is almost quarantining the past rather than exploring it. Another example is Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, which is um, it's a museum of a museum. If you ever want to go to see what museums were like in the Victorian age, you could go to this, or you could go to this museum. It's all the dark cases. Um, it was a ethnographic collection, and it was brought together. To show the hierarchy of cultures by comparing the different things that they made. So it had that kind of uh, purpose, but it inevitably didn't quite achieve that. In fact, if anything, it showed the similarity between cultures. Um, a case where museums may intend to do something, but the nature of objects and history and people is that it doesn't, you know, doesn't, you can't always kind of construct it the way you'd like to um but they've taken off their shrunken heads off display and these are not going to be returned to communities i think in many cases what's the interesting thing about the repatriation argument is that it's come from within museums unconfident about why they have this stuff anymore unable to do anything with it um thinking let's just get <laughs> who will take it who will who can we give it to and i think there's a degree to which you're seeing that with the benin bronzes in Nigeria. There is a demand for them, but there's also an eagerness from institutions to get rid of them. Um, in the case of Pitt Rivers, they've taken the shrunken heads off because they don't have any community to send them to. There's nobody's wanting them. But they no longer think it's for you, the audience, because you might think the wrong thing. So I think there's a, there's a sort of finger wagging now with institutions, um, which tells you very little about the past, uh, more about the museum mindset of these certain curators and more about what they think of the audience, which is effectively you need to be schooled in the right moral thinking, uh, not about who lived where, when, and how they lived.
0: You quote um, the scholar Torpy and maybe of some other people who make an argument I'd never heard before, which I think is utterly, extraordinarily fascinating, which is utopianism is in uh, disrepute to some extent. In in world thinking, Um, some people recognize that it could actually be utopianism, it can be dangerous. And instead of fighting over what is the ideal future, we culturally have turned to the past, which is rather an extraordinary moment in the human journey, if it's correct, if if this insight's correct. The idea is that, okay, I'm going to give up on a better future because I don't know how to get there or we can't agree on it or they all seem pretty horrible. And and religion, which once promised, uh, you know, a messianic age of sorts is also in retreat. So looking toward the future is um, shunned. And instead let's fight over the past. Let's try to repair our past let's try to use the past as a form of virtue signaling you know utopianism is definitely was has always been a form of virtue signaling whether it's religious or political or um or political but but this this focus on the past as the battleground of our intellectual um Warfare is is a fascinating insight I, I had never heard before. Talk about that.
1: Um, I think one way of thinking about it in a nutshell is that you used to have, and particularly on the left, uh, this sense of don't mourn, organize. I think that was a song by a, a left-wing protester called Joe Hill, Don't Mourn, Organize. Um, and now it's flipped over to we must organize to mourn. And I think the left is key here because I think you had – If you look at, um, I mean, I know left and right don't really work anymore, but the right traditionally had a sense of needing to conserve the past and they were perhaps too wedded to it, you know, and therefore they weren't open to experimentation and different futures that could be imagined and realised. That was the role, I think, of the left. And in a way it kind of worked quite well in that you had this this look to the past and then this look to the future. And there was a tension between the two. And I think over the course of the 20th century, uh, the failures of uh, left-wing politics and the experiments in alternatives to capitalism uh, failed. And I think also the left moved away from the working class uh, towards themselves, really, as being agents of change. Um, And as a result, that kind of the future receded. and what do you do then? You, you have what uh, Thatcher described as there is no alternative. This is it. Um, and it's not, a, in, instead of being a moment of triumph, I think it was a moment of defeat of both left and right. Uh, both ideologies um, have waned and weakened. And I think you can really see sort of post 89, 90, this turn towards almost a, a sort of a, an apologetic outlook And I think at first that was a kind of way of gaining legitimacy. I mean, people who were apologizing were, in our case, you know, Tony Blair, the Pope, um, for things they had nothing to do with, the potato blight in his case. Um, This is, you know, just before he's going into Iraq. This is Tony Um, Blair,
0: not the Pope. This is Tony
1: Blair (laughs) Prime Minister. Yeah, no, not the Pope. (laughs) Yeah. Two different guys. He had um, other
0: things to apologize for, but
1: yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. But there was this, and and I think you've seen it. I think you've really seen it, and really kind of become really high pitched in the last few years over slavery, over the birth of uh, America. What, you know, what was the originating date of America? Uh, the 1619 project. Um, so the foundations of the past are being ripped up and people are fighting over its meaning, but it's all driven by present. It's nothing to do with the past, but it is very destabilising, I think, because we learn less and less about the past. We're not thinking about the future. And in a way, we've lost, a, we've lost the distinction between the past and the future. Um, so you get a sort of curious presentism. Um, and I think the, all, you, all you can do really is argue for understanding the past, but we have to return to politics, if you like. And I think in in this context, obviously, culture has become, instead of you know, thinking about how you might uh, make a productive economy, we think about returning objects, and the cultural sector has become very very politicised and involved in that to its detriment, I think. And objects do then become tools of politics rather than objects of enlightenment.
0: Well, I'm confused about. Your argument about the present versus the past, i again, I grew up in 1950s, 1960s America where, you know, cowboys and Indians, there were good guys and bad guys. And um, certainly the – some sort of reckoning has been made. I don't think it's very effective or very well done with – the treatment of Native Americans in the United States. The part so I th- I think that's hmm. I, I wouldn't say we've not we've ignored the past. We've swung toward a different vision of the past in, in the cultural mainstream that, that's almost as one sided in some settings, not this one, but in many settings that that um that's not particularly accurate either, but at least it's a voice that gets heard that didn't get heard before. The part I that I that resonated with me in your book, and I I, th- I think you said this, certainly it's a theme, whether you said it explicitly or not, is that you know, the people who stand up at conferences and begin by announcing that they apologize for the fact that the land that that they are standing on, where the campus was established or the museum was established, once belonged to, say, Native Americans or some other or an Aboriginal group, in the case of Australia, that, that this has – you could argue whether it's good or bad, but it, it appears to be a gesture that allows people to avoid taking responsibility for the present, <laughs> yeah. where, where, where the treatment of, of certainly Native Americans in the United States is, is still deeply troubling – I'm not talking about day-to-day racism I'm talking about government policy is is deeply troubling and the the, the real pro- the problem I have with virtue signaling isn't the the performative part of it it's the performative part of it to the exclusion of real change um so I, I think that's that that's the problem I have with uh, with that and I, I I think you agree with that, or do you?
1: Yeah, no, I, I do very much so. I think that's certainly the case here as well. Um, and it was notable that it was a Labour government that turned to culture to solve social problems rather than government. So it said these these centres are centres for social inclusion, museums and galleries. Um, and this was, a, this was a government which, you know, it has, we have seen rising inequality. And in a way, the retreat of the state and the government and the political sphere from solving social problems. And I think certainly that's, that's happened. Um, let me try and explain what I mean. Um, Cause it's quite hard to try and tackle it. I think if you look at the museum of the native American Indian in America.
0: It's, it's in Washington, not, in DC on the, on the mall.
1: On the mall. Um, and if, <laughs> In a way, it's definitely progress from the exhibits that you talk about in the 50s. There's no doubt about it. In no way am I saying we need to go back to the way things were. Um, but I think two things have happened. So I'd like to be critical of them without saying there was this golden age. Um, there was, without doubt, no, no golden age. In terms of the this institution, it kind of exemplifies what I mean. So on the one hand, you've got having cultural representation and inquiry is essential to being an equal citizen in society, but in a way it's all loaded onto culture. So that speaks to sort of the point you were making in a way. What about, what about stuff? What about material, you know, instead of treating native Americans um, as if their problems can be magicked away by a museum, what about doing uh, other things? I think there's an element of that, but there is, Something else that's gone on. And in a way, I think it's more because it's driven for the benefit of the museum than it is for the Native Americans. Um, You know, they're the ones who are making the decisions about what goes in and what this museum is for. They do it in the name of, in the voice of Native Americans. I say that, I mean, they're they're run, they they have to have a certain number of Native Americans, but who speaks to the Native Americans, right? Who's, you know, their government, in a way, that's kind of state appointed. Um, but what you've got is one vision that's allowed. And so you—it certain museums can only be run by people of certain identities and really can only have a certain message about the past. And that's because almost because it's so tied to its political purpose, which is to make people feel like they're part of America, that uh, they're good, they're nice people. And so the kind of the narrative is driven by that political purpose. And so, in a way, I think you're getting this very idealized view of history. And so, in so you could say in the past you had these hidden histories, where which might have been the native, you know, the history of Native Americans in America was written by Americans and it was hidden. It was sort of secreted away. And now you have. A new hidden history, because only certain people—you, in a way—only certain histories are allowed to be told. They dress it up in nice language, but it's still—it's still very partial. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: I mean, you could—I mean, part of it is the fact that in large mass cultural movements, nuance is never going to be the strong suit of, unfortunately, just a reality. Um the the motto of this program, Tiffany, is it's complicated. Yeah. It's the informal motto uh, that people tease me about. Um, and it's complicated. It doesn't sell very well. Um, and so inevitably, I think it's going to be the case that culture swings between various um, un-nuanced interpretations of history. Um, but I think what you remind me of that that is um, fascinating and alarming is that these institutions that we're talking about museums but of course that's just one piece of the cultural landscape another important piece of the cultural landscape are are universities and I think I've joked about this on the program before um, a um When I was at Washington University in St. Louis, a friend of mine was – he told me he was spending a lot of time on a committee he was on. I said, what what committee is that? I said, well, it's the education committee. I said, what do you mean the education committee? He said, well, you know, it's the committee that keeps an eye on the educational process. Well, you're thinking, but isn't this a university? I mean, isn't that the whole thing? And, of course, it's not. And and universities, which were temples of scholarship and education – in the old days just like museums were temples of historical memory and 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 education now they have they they serve a different purpose uh and and some would say that's better uh, i wouldn't but who knows if i'm right the argument is that they serve our identity or our sense of who we are or a, a cultural force that's necessary as atonement for a past injustice Um, right now in America, um, many, many colleges are dropping the meritocratic uh, entry barriers that they once established of SAT scores, grades, in the name of other goals. Um, And I think that's, I think a great deal is lost, but others would say, yeah, perhaps, but uh, much is gained. But But the real point is that all of these institutions, and I'm sure there are others, um, are not doing what they once did. And uh, that's just the way it is.
1: I think the question, therefore, is are they succeeding on their own terms? I don't think they are. Um, I, I think you have to ask access to what? And if you're one of the people who, allow, who are kind of committed in finally uh, by lowering the demands are you going to be satisfied no because I think you're treated it's a it's a lie isn't it really if you're not being educated to the standard you need to be to get into university and then at university educated to a higher standard and being allowed if you like to for your imagination to roam free if you're not being stimulated which I don't think people are they're just being told they're they're in here's the certificate you know, it's a con. I think it's a con for those people. Um, I think there are better ways, which is there there are reasons why people aren't getting the stand, you know, getting to the educational level they need to get to, to get into university. And they need to be tackled. You know, how do we, how do we really create a, a kind of healthy intellectual culture that helps people up? We're not doing that. I also think that when you get to university, I mean, I speak to students a lot and they just feel like, because they've paid their money, they're, they're there for kind of all these other kind of political goals. They know it's not kind of, it's not this intellectual place that they want, they would like. I think it's a con.
0: Well, some of it is, a, you know, if we looked at the underlying driving forces on this, I, I think it's much more about egalitarianism than it is about fighting injustice. I think it's a, a desire for leveling and getting rid of hierarchy and could argue that that's got some benefits. I'm um, open-minded or agnostic about that, but the, I think the 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 point you make in your book, which I find um, quite persuasive, is that museums weren't designed to be places of atonement. They weren't designed to be uh, uh, the place to conduct cultural contrition. They were designed to educate. And whether they were designed for that or not doesn't matter. They don't perform, as you, as you alluded to a minute ago, they do not perform the task that they're being asked to perform very effectively. We need a different institution for that. The political process needs to do that. The political process needs to redress grievances. And the real risk, and I, I worry when I say this because it sounds like an excuse, so I say it with some caution, the real worry is that by doing what, what is a sham – in this case, uh, apologizing for say past injustices in the accumulation of items at a museum, or closing a museum, or getting rid of the items that, that that make people uncomfortable, we we've solved we've salved our conscience, and therefore we're done. And the true injustices, the true things that need to be redressed, are are left undone. And I think the. The, the natural response to that is well you should do both but that does not seem to be the human response it's it seems to be more like well i apologized you know i'm done um i've done my part and so i, I think your critique of museums as ill suited for cultural um education of this kind via political arguments is is very persuasive to me
1: I think it comes about for two reasons. One is the kind of future-looking political projects, uh, which means the cultural sphere and the past becomes the place for kind of contestation. And two, the sense in which museums and institutions of learning, including universities, have lost faith in the point almost of learning about the past and the possibility, you know, the possibility that we could do that and it's not all just a relativist mush. And so they're linked, unfortunately. And I think getting out of it does mean both doing stuff in the political sphere where there is a great deal of fatalism. Um, you know, if we are determined, if everything today is as, as a result of what happened 200 years ago, then what can we do? You know, we are just prisoners. There's a real fatalism. So some kind of more... Ambitious thinking about the possibilities of what human beings can do because we have. I mean, the past is sort of a half empty, half full thing, isn't it? You know, depending on the way you look at it, it could be all terrible war, inequality, violence, abuse, or it could be the things that we have achieved civil rights. degree of equality, material advancement, uh, the medical breakthroughs. And so, you know, we we need to rebalance the way we see our past a little bit more. Um, It perhaps was a little bit too positive in the past. Now it's a little bit too negative. But so we need to have, I think, as a society, much more kind of confidence in what human beings can be and do. Um, Some more ambitious thinking there. But we also just need to treasure the insights and the knowledge and the creativity of civilizations that came before us to be able to look and understand at what they created, the bad and the good and museums and institutions like universities are the place to do that. We need in a way to respect what the past can tell us and understand that there's a thread between the two and not confuse them, I suppose.
0: I guess today has been Tiffany Jenkins. Tiffany, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you.